Hello, my name's Mark Muller-Stewart and welcome to the Beyond Borders Scotland podcast, where ideas enlighten. This week, as the Epstein papers are released and we move into the new year with a new king on the British throne, saying goodbye to the Elizabethan age, we thought we'd return to a talk given on the eve of Elizabeth II's death at the Beyond Borders Festival in late August 2022, in which veteran broadcaster Jim Nockerty talks to an old friend of the festival, Tina Brown, about her rollicking, riveting and revealing book, The Palace Papers, exploring the trials and tribulations of the royal family since the death of Princess Diana. As both Tina and Jim give their predictions about what may happen and how the royal family might react as they move into the new Carolean age. Tina provides a witty, fascinating and still relevant insight into what made Charles and Camilla and their children the people they are today. Good afternoon, everyone. It's um, lovely to be back here at Traquair and uh, lovely to see you here in the tent uh, with all your antennae quivering. <laughs> and uh, it's my enormous pleasure to introduce Tina Brown. Um, no one else can say that they've been executive editor of the New Yorker, Vanity Fair, and Tatler, uh, far less inventing the Daily Beast, which I think is one of the great, um, great marks on Tina's escutcheon. Uh, I have escutcheons at Traquair. She is, um, she's a wonderful writer, apart from anything else, as well as an editor and a, you know, a historian of our age. And this book, The Palace Papers, is the story of the royal family over a, a period in which it has gone through a very tumultuous series of changes and challenges, and we'll talk about all that. Please welcome Tina Brown. Hi. Tina, we've got to start, I think, because on this Saturday night, 25 years ago, Diana, Princess of Wales, was killed in a car crash. The, the date is the 31st, but it was the equivalent of this weekend in 1997. Um, and rereading your book, you realize that the epicenter of the whole story of the modern monarchy, let's say, you know, since the abdication and the war and the Queen's accession in the early 50s, that was the moment that encapsulates so much about the story, doesn't it? It really does. I mean, the death of Diana was this absolute traumatic event um, that just shook the monarchy to the very core. And in fact, some of the Queen's closest courtiers like to refer to the time afterwards as the revolution, because although there actually wasn't, there nearly was. And there was a time when, uh, it was a time when they, the, the royals were just absolutely shaken uh, in, in terms of their own reassessment. They, they, they did not know how to react. It was the only time really that the Queen can be said to have misjudged uh, what she was supposed to do because she has always been, you know, a representational monarch whose role was to be as opposed to emote. And suddenly the British people were asking her to emote, to show her grief, to come down from Balmoral, to do all these things, which are absolutely sort of out of her wheelhouse, essentially. And it was a very, for her, rattling time that she took some time to get over, actually. And there was the business of the flag um, above the palace. And then there was a the whole question of making a public statement, which ended, of course, with her famous 
um, address live on the night before the funeral, which was the most extraordinary thing, which was put to her as something which she might do to rescue the disaster of the preceding week. And I was told, and it's in the book as well, by somebody who was there, that she just said, right, I'll do it, and did it. She it, did was it, a, she, it, it was, was quite a moment. It was quite a moment, but, I mean, everybody seized on the kind of heartwarming fact that she said, as a grandmother, mm. but actually that line was written for her by Downing Street. And it really was... He's coming tomorrow, by the way. he's coming anyway. tomorrow. I'm sure <laughs> he'd be quite happy to say that he wrote it. Uh, and Prince Philip regarded the whole thing as an absolute humiliation. I mean, he was not in favour of any of it. And, of course, the most uh, remarkable moment was when the coffin of Diana passed, um, uh, you know, the, the queen was out, you know, outside Buckingham Palace, yes. and she bowed her head. The only time she's ever bowed her head for anybody um, was for the coffin that went by of Diana, because she knew that she had to in that instant. And that was how much Diana had impacted that family. And, of course, the story that preceded that and the arrival of Diana in the family and the, the drama of the marriage and then the divorce... Um, paved the way for the story that has followed since, um, leading to what the papers called, we wouldn't, we're above this sort of stuff, but Megxit. Anyway, yeah. that's the last time you hear me saying that. But let's go back to what happened with the change that Diana brought. Well, Di you know, Diana left all this real scorched earth, and uh, the next sort of ten years were all about the Windsors, essentially, having to try to right the ship. And at the centre of that writing the ship, obviously, was the Queen, who, you know, with her composure, with her absolute determination that duty must be just carried out and prevail, she understood, take the long view. This is the Queen's great strength, is like how to take the long view. You work, you do your duty, you tweak certain things you're doing, but essentially the work will finally reward you with people loving you again. And, of course, at the same time, Charles had to do something completely else. He had to try to rehabilitate the whole imagery of Camilla because at that particular moment, Camilla was seen as, you know, the terrible witch that had, you know, stolen um, him away from the great sainted mm. Diana, who the world now was seeing almost as a sort of, you know, like an icon of, of, of a perfect, you know, wonderful human being. And indeed, you know, we know what her great strengths were. So he had to bring Camilla out of the shadows. So he spent 10 years, essentially, bringing her out of the shadows, trying to get the public to, to, to embrace her, with constant sort of setbacks along the way. But then we get to the sort of triumphant moment when he does get the Queen's blessing, finally, uh, to marry Camilla. Uh, and there is then this wonderfully farcical wedding, frankly, which is one of the great comic moments of our time, when everything went wrong. Everything went wrong. I mean, Charles is great sort of motto is always, oh, just my luck. You know, he, he feels everything's... He feels he's a victim of fate at all times. And this time, he really was. I mean, even the Pope died just on the day of his marriage. Um, and, you know, then they found they couldn't get married in the chapel as they'd announced because that was a constitutional yeah. issue. And they ended up in a, in a, in a getting married in the registry office. In, in, in know, Windsor, and, yeah. And Windsor and the Queen, who is not used to, frankly, going to registry office weddings. And, yes. You know, with them driving past, you know, Marks and Spencer, it's just not what she does, you know. Um, I mean, the whole thing was just a complete debacle. Uh, but at the end, of course, fairy story end, it worked. And since then, Charles and Camilla have just been the world's happiest couple. And I tend to feel that we talk constantly about the, of course, the romantic, uh, you know, 
grief-ridden sort of story of Diana and the failed, terrible marriage of her with Charles, but the real love story of the last 25 years was actually Charles no, and Camilla. exactly, yeah. And, and, I, it's, and it's now um, self-evident. And now it's self-evident. And what is completely self-evident, because Charles's whole demeanour and, and sort of relaxed kind of, you know, happiness, is that he should have just been allowed to marry the woman he wanted to. And I personally find that there is something very touching about the fact that he always wanted to marry this, like, unsvelt, age-appropriate woman, you know, who likes to but, kind of tra tramp around in her willies and, and, you know, loves dogs and loves gardening and all the things he liked. I mean, no trophy wife is she. What's fascinating about this <laughs> is that if you go back to the earlier period and the worries about how much light should be allowed to shine in on the monarchy, <coughs> Prince Philip agitated for the film Royal Family, which many of you will remember in the late 60s, which, you know, showed him frying sausages at Balmoral and all the rest of it. And the idea was that you would begin to open it up. That proved difficult in the long run, but it was inevitable. It was. That it had to happen. But the interesting point you make connected with that about Diana is that you, um, they, they wanted to keep it as it was and secure, but by making an arranged marriage, instead of allowing him to do what he wanted to do in the early 70s, i.e. in the old style, they destroyed it. They completely destroyed it. Um, I mean, what is so interesting about the Diana story, essentially, is she, she really was gaslighted at the beginning of her marriage. I mean, there's no doubt that Diana was a real victim in that marriage at the beginning. She thought she was in a love affair. She thought she was... Uh, marrying the prince of her dreams. And, and she was 21. And she was 21. She was a child. Um, she had no idea that everybody else knew, everybody else knew that Charles was in love with somebody else, uh, would most likely go on seeing his mistress. And she was really, as she said, a lamb to slaughter. She was absolutely right about that. And of course, her bulimia and all the terrible pain she went through as a result of the fact that her husband wasn't in love with her. You know, people often say to me, well, isn't there a great resemblance between Meghan Markle and Diana? I would say, absolutely not. I mean, the thing with Diana was she, she toughed it out for 17 years in the royal family, and she only left, essentially, the family structure because her husband wasn't in love with her and wanted to, you know, wanted her gone, essentially. And so she had to get divorced, and that was the end of, of her sort of, uh, you know, being inside, you know, welcomed, as it were, embraced by the, by the royal family. So she had a really terrible time, but at the same time, by the time we get to 1997, Diana was no longer that person. And I had lunch with Diana in New York in July of 97, just six weeks before she died, uh, where she came to New York for the auction of her dresses at Christie's for charity. And I had lunch with her with Anna Winter. She wanted to see us both because she's Diana... She's the editor of Vogue. She's the, the editor time. of Vogue. And Diana was always wanting to reach out to the press, you know, because I was editor of The New Yorker at the time, and she always wanted to make sure she had, you know, the press was, being, was sort of in her camp. So we had lunch, and oh my God, she was so different from the young woman that I'd met, you know, earlier in England when she was that other Diana. She was now a stunningly accomplished, you know, self-confident, uh, media-savvy, uh, you know, global woman. Yeah. Um, but at the, and, and very much aware of how she was talking to us. I mean, you, those great limpid blue eyes just sort of absorbed you into their intimacy. You think and she was happy? No, she clearly wasn't happy at all. She was uh, talked at length at lunch about two things. First of all, her abiding regret that she was no longer married to Charles. That surprised me a lot because they were divorced by then. Mm. But she had really felt that now she understood what a great, amazing... She kept saying we could have been such a great team. 
You know, she, it was as if she finally understood, you know, what they could have been together, yes. actually, because she was much more mature by this time. She also had her passions and her philanthropies, and so did Charles. So she kind of understood Charles's uh, philanthropic sort of side much yeah. more than when she was this child. And secondly, um, she kept saying how unhappy she was in August always because she said her children, the boys, would go and stay in Balmoral, leaving her on her own. And I said, well, surely, you know, you have so many friends who don't want you to come and stay. She said, absolutely not. She said, if you have me to stay, it's a total nightmare. You know, the press will go through the garbage. Yes. They will be hounded. You'll have press everywhere. And when I found, of course, six weeks later that she had died in the car crash, I kept thinking about that because it really explained why she was on that fired boat. Essentially, you know, she always said about the fireheads, oh, they have all the toys, meaning the planes, the bodyguards, yeah. the private, pla you know, the, the yacht, etc. She felt she would be safe in that kind of celebrity environment where everything was protected. And, of course, it was the opposite of that. I mean, as it happened, you know, she was sort of a sitting duck there in that celebrity uh, sort of situation in the south of France, and, and the fireheads, you know, were, were really wanted her there for their own of publicity course. reasons. Uh, it's interesting. We'll make a comparison with what's going on now or what has gone on in the last two or three years. But what is intriguing about the way you see it is that, of course, she saw that as safety, whereas the Queen and her generation, uh, the Queen brought up with the shadow of the abdication when the whole ship nearly sank, through the war, watching her parents see the war through, making a speech about duty from South Africa on her, I think, her... 21st birth, around about then, 47, 48, devoting her life to duty. Father dies young because of the job that he'd been given. That sense of safety for her was exactly opposite from the one that Diana craved and found with the fires. Well, it was at the end, don't forget. I mean, yeah. you know, Diana would have liked to have made it a success in, in the family. Her, her problem was, and this is what you know, where my book starts, you know, one of the things that was said by the Queen constantly after Diana died was never again. So what she meant by that was yeah. never again will we have a member of this family whose uh, charisma, whose, you know, whose, whose star power, whose, whose uh, uh, sort of media power, if you like, overshadows the monarchy. Because the, if you're in that setup, you know, you're, the queen is the sovereign is the, is the only thing that actually counts. Yeah. Everybody else is uh, high-born scaffolding, essentially. They're there to uphold that. And, and the last it, thing you and want... And that's how it works in day-to-day -day That is how it relations. works. And that is how it works in day-to-day -day relations. That's how it works in everything from the kind of assignments they have to do, the kind of uh, diary they're given to, to accept. Sure. I mean, it begins top-down all the way down in a very hierarchical system. Ending up with the page of the backstairs. Exactly. They got the page of the backstairs there. So, you know, Diana was just a superstar beyond... I mean, she, she was not in that hierarchy. She was bigger than that. And, the and that was very threatening to the whole institution. And the institution can't really cope with that. Absolutely not. The institution couldn't cope with that. And that was, the, of course, the source of Charles's great, great jealousy of her because... I mean, he was completely eclipsed. I mean, the, the, their marriage really hadn't had a chance from the first tour they did together of Wales. Um, when Diana was actually pregnant, people didn't know. But, you know, there were two uh, walkabout lines to go down, and, the, the, you know, the, the line that Charles went down, everybody groaned. <laughs> and they would say, Diana, Diana, we want Diana, you know, and she'd be going down the other side, and there was this complete kind of Beatlemania going on. And that's not something he was used to. He was a prince of Wales, for God's sake, you know. And yes. You know, he'd never been in a situation where he was being upstaged. And it was just worming his soul. 
Um, it is, it's extraordinary. And it, the way you put it, that the real love story at the heart of this is the Camilla Charles one. I mean, it's a real, it's a tragic story. It is. I mean, 40 years or whatever it was. Uh, you know, he was in love with her from his early 20s and he stayed in love with her now. Um, and, uh, you know, he, it, she provided him. She was, as I say, you know, the horse whisperer of his emotional needs. I mean, she understood how to give him sort of tough love at times because he is a big moaner, Charles, as we know. Camilla doesn't tolerate that. She's funny about it. She's got a great sense of humour. She's salty, earthy, she sexy. She just puffs a fag and say, well, that's him. That's exactly yeah. right. Oh, for God's sake, Charles. You know, like, you know, get, grow up, you know, is her whole sort of... But it's done with humour and it's done with charm. And that's really what he needed. And she's very much like, of course, the other great figure, woman figure in his life, the Queen Mother. And, uh, you know, um, Queen, the Queen Mother was, you know, the buttery scone to the Queen's, you know, uh, broccoli, if you like. You know, she was always... The, the one who took, you know, who soothed him. And, and How would you describe the relationship between the Prince of Wales and the Queen Mother? Well, he absolutely adored her. Uh, you know, whenever she was, he was in London and she, you know, and she was there, of course, in, um, in Clarence House, he would always go for an evening sherry with her or, or pop in and see her in the morning. Well, Simon Hoggart once described Clarence House as the world headquarters of the gin and tonic. <laughs> absolutely right. She did love a drink, the Queen yes. Mother. Mm. She absolutely did. Um, and so she, and she was a lot of fun, and she you know, took his side. She did not want him to go to Gordonston. She thought it was a terrible idea and that he should go to Eton. And she was right. And she was absolutely right. But Prince Philip won the day. The Queen is very traditional about the you know, husband and wife roles sort of off stage. I mean, she may be the monarch in the daily life, and Philip had to walk behind. But off stage, you know, William uh, really, you know, he, he was run like a very traditional family, and Philip made all the big decisions, and Philip wanted... Charles in, in Gordonston. And the other dynamic in the family that you lay out here in, in great detail, and, and I think in a very sympathetic way, actually, is that um, strange relationship between father and son, which is it was a, a very, vital part of it was the story. A it was really a terrible relationship. I mean, you know, Philip just was just constantly um, felt that Charles didn't measure up. And one of the things I found most poignant, actually, was in the family uh, tributes to Prince Philip recently when he died. You know, the BBC made a film where all the family told, you know, charming anecdotes about Philip. And all Charles's anecdotes were about failing him. They were all about saying, well, then, of course, you know, I tried to carriage ride and I was terrible about that. And my father would say, come on, you're never going to do that. And you know, it was actually quite painful to hear that he, he wasn't aware he was doing that. But they were all stories about him not measuring up. And that's obviously how he felt about his father. And... It was a very sad thing. Uh, and I think that, that actually Gordonston was a very traumatic, really traumatic experience mm. for Charles. I cold mean, it's know, with kilts, Yes, he, he called, called it. Cold it's and kilts. And he was still... Someone I know, actually, who we went to see him in Highgrove about, you know, ten years ago, said that he was still going on about how awful Gordonston was. Yeah. And he was like, wait a minute, this was like 50 years ago. But it clearly made the most incredible impact on him. It tends to do, yeah. Um, Look, um, I want to come to more current matters in a moment, i.e. Harry and Meghan, the place of the royal family in, you know, in, in the public sphere as, as, we, uh, as we sit here. But looking back to that whole story, the Queen's sense of duty um, brought up, you know, with Queen Mary, widow of George V, still being there in Marlborough House and then Clarence House, right up to the coronation, you know, a... a essentially a German Victorian, basically. 
um, the shadow of the abdication, which she had remembered from her childhood, the day that it almost all went west. Um, the change that she saw from the 60s, let's say from the moment she let the cameras in for the royal family, to the death of Diana and what went beyond. I mean, the resilience to see that through and to say, well, I'm just going to continue as I always have as the still point in a turning world. It's an amazing story. Well, look, I, I think she's extraordinary in that regard. I mean, the Queen, fortunately for the nation, the Queen really, her temperament was always one of composure and seriousness. Uh, even Winston Churchill noted as a girl her, her, her sort of unusual seriousness. Uh, she, she was a person of, of purpose. She was a person of dis self-discipline. And she took that oath, and she has always abided by it. And she's really decided, in a way, she prolonged the monarchy of her father. Mm. I mean, it actually, mm. she lived within that template that, that yep. George VI. Uh, I mean, even to the extent that her entire calendar, all of her life, this entire 70 years, it's always been that calendar of Balmoral right. in the summer and, you know, and sounding the houses, like, you know... Just Easter the, Court at Windsor. Easter Court. I mean, it has gone on all of this time unchanged. Um, and always being in Sandringham on the day marking her father's always, death. Always, always. So she, and Windsor, you know, where, where you know, she grew up, uh, has now, of course, become her more permanent home now that she uh, is, is, you know, ailing, really. So she's, she has been a person of absolute, um, uh, you know, sticking with, with, with her duty. It has been, um, it has not always been easy, but I do think that Philip has been a great help to humanise her in that regard, because Philip was her truth teller, you know? I mean, mm. she could turn to Philip and he was iconoclastic, he was irreverent, and he would always tell her the truth. And that, I think, helped her become a much more grounded person in the end, because otherwise she could have become a lonely conformist, sort of run by her ministers, because she is very conservative. Her mother also kept pushing her to stay conservative. I mean, she had to deal with the dreaded mummy. Yes. Uh, you know, for... I mean, she was, like, in her 70s when the Queen Mother dies. Yes. Uh, it, it was remarkable how, how long the Queen Mother lived, but, and she was always a voice in the Queen's ear saying, well, do we really want to do that, you know, really bad? You know, do we want to go that far? Do we... We don't surely want to give up the, the Royal, you know, Britannia. We don't, we don't want to have, uh, you know, open areas of Buckingham Palace. Income she, tax. Or income tax. She was against the income tax. So Mummy was always the one pushing for conservatism and, and Philip was always the one pushing for modernisation. And, of course, you have to remember the bubble in which she grew up and lived. You tell a story about her going to um, visit a friend in Paris and going to um, a restaurant or a bar and realising that she had never ordered food from a menu before. That's absolutely right. Now, when um, uh, Porchy, you know, Lord Carnarvon, her, her racing manager, took her to this restaurant on... Uh, was, I think she was there for uh, the anniversary of D-Day, and, and they went to this restaurant afterwards, and she didn't have a drink, and she actually had never... She didn't realise you had to order from a waiter. <laughs> and another occasion, you know, there was a, some kind of walkabout where she had to be in a pub, and she didn't know you had to go to the bar to order a drink. I mean, to us, it's just completely inconceivable that this is the world in which the Queen has been raised. Uh, of course, that's been very different for William and, and Harry. I mean, they and, were brought like up in the modern poor world. Poor Charles and the older members of the audience will remember the story of the Prince of Wales and the cherry brandy in Stornoway. <laughs> Do you, anybody remember that? <laughs> yes. He was, I mean, he was in some Gordonston school trip, I think, when he was 17 or 18, and they went into a bar or something, and, and they said, what, what do you want? And he panicked. 
And he said, well, cherry brandy, because he'd heard his grandmother say it or something. Anyway, there was this great hoo-ha about, you know, this 17-year-old boy ordering cherry brandy in a pub in Stornoway. I mean, why they were stocking it in Stornoway, I don't know. But anyway, look, what's interesting about all this, Tina, is that it all kind of comes home to roost with the Harry and Meghan story. Um, take us through that. I mean, the innocence, yet again, 30, 40 years on, of a royal bride who came into the family completely, I mean, and, you know, appallingly, from her point of view, ignorant of what it was going to be and simply didn't know. Thought, well, I'm just going to be a Hollywood star. Well, I mean, I don't consider that innocence, frankly. I consider that being, shall we say, willfully ignorant. Honestly, she was 36 years old and, and she wasn't uh, the 19-year-old puppet that Diana was. And her husband was very much in love with it, so yeah. she didn't have to deal with that. But she really had an absolute... There was no context for the palace to understand the worldview of a Meghan coming from Hollywood and for Meghan to view the Windsors. I mean, when she said on the Oprah interview, I thought I could handle this. I mean, I'm in Hollywood. I know celebrities, right? And I was thinking, what? I mean, yeah. if you ever thought that the sort of country-loving, you know, thrifty, you know, sort of super private, I mean, all the yes. things that the royals are, the absolute diametrical opposite to mm. celebrities who are famous and, and, and want to be famous. It's all on the outside. It's all on the outside. So it was an absolute mistake. She also kind of thought that she would be uh, a sort of instant uh, amalgamation of Amal Clooney and Princess Diana and, you know, I mean, Angelina Jolie. She would be a princess of the world who would immediately be sort of rocketing out on these massive global tours, uh, sort of being this humanitarian um, super goddess. But actually... The funny thing to me was that, you know, when I researched her acting career, Megan was number six on the call sheet, right, of Suits. That meant that she, you know, she wasn't the star of the show. She wasn't the next star of the show. She was number six on the show. So she marries Prince Harry. Guess what he is? Number six on the call sheet, right? <laughs> Prince Harry is sixth in line to the throne. That means that, you know, he wasn't given all the things that she expected. I mean, money, I don't think, was ever really discussed no. between them. I mean, I doubt that Harry would say, well, actually, you know, I d I've only got, you know, what I get from the Bank of Dad and a, a bit of sovereign grant. I'm sure that wasn't in, uh, in their conversations, nor were they going to live in a palace because guess what? It was going to take two years to deal with all the dry rot in Kensington Palace in the available apartment. And they had to live in, you know, not cot, the little cottage with two bedrooms for the first year, really, of their marriage until finally Granny came up with, you know, um, Frogmore House, uh, mm. Cottage. Uh, you know, which was a kind of rabbit warren that had to be redone. So, I mean, all Meghan's kind of fantasies of living in great sort of glamorous splendor, essentially, and being this, were absolutely an illusion, essentially. There was a, a, she was appalled by it. A moment in this story, which I think you call and is, is generally known as the Sandringham Summit, which is the moment at which the decision had to be made, can you stay and make this work, or do you go? And they came, it seems, with a a suite of ideas, and the Queen basically said no. I mean, Absolutely. it was an extremely ruthless affair, wasn't it? it was Just describe it from well, what you I know. Well, I mean, Harry made the worst deal in the world. I mean, uh, they made a massive mistake. They were enormously impatient. Um, 
again, it amused me very much, frankly, when, when Harry described on the Oprah interview how you know, he was going to go to England and talk to the Queen. The Queen had invited him to tea at Sandringham. Then he lands, his plane lands, and he gets a message from her private secretary that the Queen's diary is now full. <laughs> so Harry goes, like, her advisors, he goes off in this rant about her advisors uh, subsequently. But, you know, the idea that the Queen doesn't do exactly what she wants to do or that her advisors aren't really... Essentially, they give her corporate deniability. I mean, like any major leader, she'll turn to him and say, you, you know, you handle this. I've just realized that what he's coming to do is talk about Mexit. I don't want to do that, so just say that I'm busy. I mean, that is a way, obviously, that the Queen, mm. in, inevitably, she, she operates that way. And the private secretary is there to make sure that she gets what she wishes. So, of course, you know, the Queen didn't want to have that conversation unless it was done in the proper way. And, and one of her, uh, you know, the advisors said to me, that the family always know which queen they're going to see. Are they going to see Granny, Mummy, you know, who's charming and lovely and warm and the dogs and the tea and all the rest of it? Or are they going to see Queen Elizabeth II, who, uh, you know, if they're going to go and talk about anything matters that affect the Constitution or the crown, the monarchy, the image of the monarchy, anything that, that affects the health and wellness of the monarchy, as it were, it's a whole different scene. You're going to get... All the you know the private secretary sitting around a big table with a notepad and you know it, it's a proper yes. board meeting essentially, so they they know that they they know it and if and of course like every family in a powerful dynasty they try to get around it sometimes I mean Andrew is constantly doing that as we know that's why the Emily Maitlis interview happened because he went round the private secretaries and went to Mummy and said you know oh the BBC want to talk about my philanthropies and is it okay if I do it here oh yes darling you can do it here not realising, of course, what horror was about to take place. Bracket, brackets disaster. Yeah, brackets disaster. OK. So yeah. the Sandringham summit essentially was... I mean, I was told that the Queen was very much in charge of that summit. You know, it wasn't about the Queen being pushed around by anybody. Harry essentially came there with this ask, which was, we want to go on being royal, or we want to go on doing our Commonwealth tours, I want to go on doing my royal, my, my military patronages... But we also want to be able to do deals with Netflix and Spotify and do major, and we want to live half the time away, and we want to come back and do the royal things. And she just said, "Niet." She said, no. And the, they'd made a giant mistake, which is they'd created this website for their mm. company, which they called, you know, Sussex Royal. They had not asked whether they could use that type, that name for their company, their company or their, you know, their brand. Uh, not ever got any uh, pub, uh, sort of consent for that. They'd created this thing with all of their sort of new uh, manifesto of what they were going to be doing without actually getting any of it approved. And then they, it leaked. And that really made everybody uh, furious, including the Queen, because you do not give the Queen an ultimatum. Yeah. If you do, you will lose. If you do, you will you lose. There's just absolutely no way. So they came in and he asked for all these things and she just said no. And that was it. That was the end of it. And uh, he was absolutely shattered. They were both shattered. They thought that they could push the situation by saying, we're so popular, look, you know, we're, we're world famous, you know, we're, yeah. we, we can do this. But it was a big misfired uh, piece of gamesmanship. Very naive. Two quick ones before I bring in the audience, because I'm sure people will have um, some very interesting questions to ask. Um, William and Kate, very quickly, and the future of the institution. Well, Kate, I mean, it's, it, I think she's a fascinating figure, actually. Um, because, you know, here is this girl from an, uh, you know, an affluent middle-class family 
who, when she sort of, uh, after the endless courtship with, with William, which went on and on, and nobody really was quite sure whether she could sort of close the deal, but she did, because like the Queen, she knows how to play the long game and be patient and strategic. Um, people thought, well, how is this girl going to be able to uh, cope with being our future queen? And now, of course, people think, well, how would anything, how would the House of Windsor survive, you know, without the Duchess of Cambridge? Sure. Because she has, she basically said, I've got this. I know how to do this, and I'm willing to do this. Um, and I, I sometimes think back of that Queen's sort of coronation oath when, when they said, when, you know, the Archbishop said, you know, are you willing to take this oath of office? And she replies, I am willing. Yes. And I sometimes think I am willing is the critical line because Kate has looked at this situation upstairs, you know, every way sideways, as it were, in over 10 years and has looked at it and said, I am willing. And she is. She has, you know, she's been willing to bite it off with all of its kind of uh, confinements and its challenges and its difficulties. And she's figured out, actually, how to make a success of it and also be a sort of modern mother, in, uh, you know, who, who's great at you know, raising her children and has managed to create a private bubble. You know, Harry and Meghan constantly talked about no privacy, whatever. Well, the Cambridges actually have created their yeah. own privacy very successfully. You know, they've lived in Anne Hall in Norfolk. People often see them there on the beach. I mean, uh, you know, they, they, they've managed to somehow, because they really want to be private, sort of create a very good safe space for themselves. Now they're going to, to Windsor, and again, it's, it's, it's a smart decision. The children will be, you know, confined by the park, and they're mm. going to be safe, and they're going to all go to the same school, and they're near the parents. She's very, very strategic and sound and solid. And I think of all of them, she's the most like Elizabeth II, as a matter of fact. Women are very good at this role, let us just say. Think about it, Elizabeth yeah. I, Queen Victoria, Elizabeth II, the future Queen Catherine. I think they know how to do it. And of course, the funny thing about William, because of his um, relationship through his mother uh, to Charles II, is regarded by people who take these things very, very seriously as a proper Stuart um, descendant, and therefore the gates behind us will be opened, but, <laughs> but not... Oh, I knew there'd be somebody here who knew about that. Um, but, but, don't, not... but, don't you, but don't you think he's turning into a very much a Windsor while Harry's becoming more and more of a Spencer? Well, but his father's going to be king. Yes. Actuarily, this is going to happen at some point. And my last question to you, Tina, before... We could be here till 10 o'clock. Um, but my last question to you is this, before I open it up. Um, when the Queen leaves the scene, you know, um, it will happen. Uh, she's 96. It's going to happen at some point. Um, what, what is the effect? I mean, my own feeling is that the, the national feeling will be stronger than some people expect it to be. Some people who perhaps have not been obsessed by this story will realise that something kind of fundamental and very stable in our lives has been there for, you know, all these years will have gone. And the interesting thing, what happens then? And I think there will be a giant national nervous breakdown when the Queen dies. I think we're not going to, we can't even imagine how, how powerfully her loss will be felt. Deeper than some people expect. Absolutely, because we're also at a time of such volatility and insecurity and, and, and uh, a sort of, you know, inferior behavior in public life. And, and she seemed to be the last person who knew how to behave, you know, who actually, kept her promises to the nation and 
You're not um, referring to the Prime Minister. <laughs> Sorry, I wouldn't get you onto that. Terrible. You know, people are just longing to have somebody who actually knows, you know, knows how to behave. That's all I can say. And, and I think that that loss, that feeling of her, and of course the circles of history around her, the first, you know, her first Prime Minister being Winston Churchill, her last probably being Liz Truss. I mean, it's absolutely remarkable what we've seen. I mean, there must be a certain... In her mind, shall we say? I think, I think we should difference. leave it there. Yes. Um, <laughs> can I suggest we get some questions? Um, yeah, there's one over there. Now, mics will come to you more quickly than you can imagine. Wait till the mic comes and then speak. Yep. Thank you so much. What a wonderful conversation. So my question is really about, um, about race. Um, there was an awful lot of coverage of uh, Meghan being mixed race in the media when she hadn't married Harry yet. And she, of course, alluded to this in the Oprah interview. I wonder if you can just reflect on that tension inside the royal family. Well, I think she undoubtedly had a great deal of racist coverage when she first uh, came on the scene. I mean, uh, I reread all the pieces, and they really were racist, misogynist, terrible. Really, really terrible. And I do think that being uh, a member of the royal family, I mean, she would not have seen anybody like her in the family. I mean, there's only 8.5 diversity in the palace amongst the palace employees. I don't see, I mean, the Queen has never had um, a person of color as a, as, as a private secretary, actually. And I'm quite surprised that nor has William and Kate at this point or have anybody really in their close circles. So I think she definitely um, had every reason to feel kind of very much alone in that situation. So, uh, I th and I actually do think that one thing that Meghan um, sort of has has done, essentially, is to really make the, the family review those feelings and, and behaviors and, and thoughts about all of it. Uh, I thought that they, the wedding was one of the great, wonderful high points when we all saw what felt like the new diverse England and finally the white Protestant bastion, you know, of the, of the House of Windsor had really now had this fantastic new ambassador and there was a great feeling of sorrow in the family that that went south particularly actually amongst Charles who feels that you know he's going to be king now and he really wants the family to seem like a modern you know to be modern and, and in, in contact essentially with the nation that, that he'll be reigning over so there was a great great feeling of disappointment about that and, and, and a lot of self-searching in the palace about whether they took it all seriously enough and 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 essentially uh, comported that whole sort of Megan chapter in the right way? Were they insensitive to that? And I think the answer is that they were, actually. You've got a question here and then there. I, yeah. I, you, said, you, you said that um, she got a lot right, but I wondered if you'd comment on her funding of Andrew's um, court case against Virginia Dupre. Yes. Well, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> how long have we got? How do we? How do we? How does she stash away this sixty-two-year-old man who won't get the memo that nobody wants to see him? Right? Why doesn't uh, he get it? He's not the bright bulb. Let's be honest. Uh, he just is climbing the walls there in Royal Lodge and doesn't know what the hell to do with himself. You know, the only people who will talk to him is the horse. Uh, that's why he's out riding every day. Um, well, I mean, Andrew, I think, represents the Queen's fatigue, frankly. Um, I'm told that sort of the moment that Charles essentially sort of took the helm, because he is really running things now, um, he's not, you know, signing certain critical papers and so on, yeah. but he really is essentially now doing a great many things at the he's Queen. He's a regent in all he's but name. He's really a regent in all but name. 
And the moment that that really happened was Andrew. She basically said, look, you deal with this. I just can't deal with this. It was just, I mean, for her, just such an awful, awful business. And in the end, you know, they had to pay uh, the settlement, essentially, because, I mean, it was going to just go on and on, essentially. And uh, I think it was very, very painful for the Queen. I think, actually, her fatigue can really be shown by the fact that Andrew managed to winkle himself into the situation of escorting her down the aisle at Phillips mm. Memorial. That was a sad image and actually was very, very unfortunate. It was very upsetting to William and Charles. To be honest, I do not know why neither William or, or Charles went to Windsor to pick her up and bring her. That's sort of so typical of their sort of Windsor dysfunction. Oh, Andrew's going to bring her because he lives next door. I mean, come on. Yeah. I mean, couldn't they made the detour from mm. Gloucester or whatever, I mean, wherever he lives. I mean, it's just, it was, seemed to me so uh, clumsy, frankly, that, that they put themselves in a situation where, where Andrew was going to be in the car with her and then essentially pushing aside the dean and escorting her down the aisle, which is what he really did. And she didn't fight it. Look, she's 96. It's her son. I think she kind of... It was her husband's memorial. He is, you know, Philip's son. So if he ever had a reason to be allowed to be there, that perhaps was the one occasion. But it was a very good thing that he had a rather, shall we say, fortuitous attack of COVID uh, before the next big jubilee function. Indeed. Over here. I have read the book, and uh, I think it's quite difficult to write about the royal family without being stuffy or pompous. Well, this is a rattling good read, and I thoroughly recommend Quoting it. you on that. <laughs> um, Speaks I'm, a member of Her Majesty's Privy Council. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is very, it's a very good read. But I do want to take issue with your one Please. thing, and that is where you, 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 you let Harry and Meghan off very lightly on the Winfrey interview. And the reason, so? I say, the reason I say that is that I was a young MP when we passed the Race Relations Act. And at that point in the 60s, we were all suffering the abuse of, would you allow your daughter to marry one of them? Well, I did. My daughter married an Indian. And we all speculated about what the babies would look like. And that's a natural curiosity, which uh, obviously occurred in the royal family as well. And yet, it was described as racist. Well, I mean, I didn't describe it as racist. She yeah. did. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, we don't know what was said, quite honestly. Um, What's your best bet? My best bet? I, 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 actually, I, I genuinely yeah. don't know yeah. uh, what that was. Clearly, it offended her greatly. Um, and, you know, all one can think of is that, you know, this was just... It was unfortunate that it came up, because without a name and so on, it, it really just cast a big smear over everybody. And it was a very painful, I think, for the family that they couldn't really answer back on that issue because we don't know what really happened. But, but anybody who's watched uh, what the Prince of Wales has done, I don't mean on Commonwealth trips and so on, but with the Prince's Trust and the work it does, the idea that there is racism involved in that is kind of absurd, isn't it? Well, no, he has done an enormous amount. Yeah. And so, well, so is the Queen. I mean, the Queen's, you know, passion for the Commonwealth. I mean, you know, we've never seen any... I mean, Prince Philip, I don't think one can say the same about. And, um, oh, but that's not. just because he, you know, he can't resist and couldn't resist a dig when he, well, you he know, couldn't, got but the I chance. Mean, but, you know, and Princess Margaret, you know, there have been... But it's all that generation, I, I, I think. Yeah. And I... Well, not all of them. No, that's not fair either. It's some of that generation. But no, I mean, it was, it was a very, very unfortunate uh, thing to say, quite honestly, because it, there was no backup to it and simply created a lot of pain in, the, in that family and, and a bad, I have to say, it very much damaged them in, the, in America, very, very much damaged them. And, 
it was taken as God's truth. It really was and in, in America. And I think it's going to take some time for them to assuage that. One of the interesting, just in conclusion, because we're coming to the end, sadly, um, we could go on for a long time. One of the extraordinary things about this story is the way that a marriage is at the heart of it. Um, you have the queen um, marrying, you know, for love at the end of the war, effectively, 40, 46, 47. Um, you then have the unexpectedly young queen in her 20s having to tell her sister that she cannot marry the man she loves because he was divorced, Peter Townsend, in the mid-50s. Because the queen, in her 20s, as Supreme Governor of the Church of England, saw that as her duty. Mm -hmm. You then get the creation of the idea of the family, encapsulated in the famous film, as being the a sort of microcosm of the nation. This is what mm -hmm. we should all be like. A sacralized family. And then you get the gradual disintegration of the marriages of three of her children. Um, two of them, you know, well, I mean, there's the toe-sucking, but, I mean, two of them fairly quietly, um, but the other disastrously and appallingly in the public prints. And yet the Queen remains married through this time. She remains a symbol of continuity. But marriage has been a nightmare from the beginning, hasn't it? Well, it has, but it's also been the saving, you know. I mean, who they marry turns out to be the most critical uh, decision. I mean, George VI, a marriage to uh, Elizabeth, the Queen's mo the Queen Mother, she yes. became... I mean, that was... She really was the making of him. Mm. I mean, without her sort of tender strength, as it were, and her encouragement, he would have been this kind of stammering, you know, miserable... You know, she really stiffened his resolve and and was at his side throughout the Blitz and so on, and was absolutely a remarkable source of strength to him. And we see the same with Camilla and Charles, and we see the same with, um, with Kate and William. You know, that, that, and indeed, you know, Harry married the love of his life and obviously has found happiness, of a, of a, you know, to all extents and purposes, with her. So, yeah, who they marry is absolutely critical. And it's really why William spent 10 years with Kate before he asked her to marry him, because he, he understood that. He saw what had happened with his mother and Charles, and he really wanted her to understand, this is what you are getting into. Do not marry me if you can't handle it, because this is what it is. It's not going to change. And that was actually the very smart, prudent thing of him to do, I think. If you were to sum up the Queen, her achievements, her character, from any perspective you want, in a few words, how would you put it? I mean, she's the still center of the turning world, isn't she? I mean, she is. And I think that one of the things that has been so rattling for the last sort of 10 years is as all these things have gone wrong recently, the big difference is that the Queen won't be there soon to pull it all back together. Remember the COVID speech. Right. I mean, we saw in COVID how she was able to rally the nation with her remarkable... Uh, her tone of of patient, dutiful uh, uh, understanding that life, you know, could be optimistic even though... We we'll meet again. Lives. We meet again. And uh, she really, that was her, her last great moment, I feel, where the point, if you like, of the monarchy was so brilliantly proved that, you know, that there was this national rallying point of, of the sovereign, which is above politics, which is such a, you know, a, a wretched sort of, you know, you know, fighting, you know self-involved activity, that at its very best, the monarchy, the sovereign, the right sovereign, can 
raise people up, raise the sights and ask them to think about, you know, being part of something bigger than themselves. The Queen has always done that. She's always seen uh, that her duty is about, you know, service, service, service. And she's never wavered in that. So we do owe her an enormous uh, debt. And we just want to say, God help her with her kids, that's all. <laughs> Thank you. We've, we've come, sadly, to the end. Tina will be signing books in the, in the tent just across the way in a moment. And there's going to be, a, I should say, a very uh, touching moment tomorrow afternoon where a tree is going to be planted um, here at Traquair in memory of Harry Evans, Sir Harold Evans. Uh, Tina tells me you talk about great love matches. I mean, goodness, the devotion that you two had for many, many years um, was you know, a joy to everybody who knew you. And Harry Evans, who's been here, you know, pictures just there, second to the and, end. And um, of course, one of the great figures of British journalism, and it's going to be commemorated uh, by a tree here, which is a very, very um, wonderful thing. And it's going to be. An I'm so grateful. Well, it's going to be a very touching moment. So if you're here tomorrow afternoon, do come along, along, and and sort of gather round wherever the the spade is going to be stuck in the ground. I will certainly be there. Uh, but for the moment, uh, can I thank you for coming? I hope you've had a lovely day at Traquair, as we all have. And it's my great pleasure to ask you to thank very, very warmly Tina Brown. Thank you.